Thanks, everyone. Josiah, that was well done. You even got, you nailed every name on that list. Pretty impressive. Well done. Hey, so I want to, just by way of analogy, I want to talk about why we're going to be in Daniel through September. Okay, so I don't usually fly a lot, um, but when I do fly and I'm boarding a plane, I always try to get a look at the pilot whether it be a man or a woman, right? And you know why, because for the next several hours, my life is literally going to be in his or her hands, right? And as I'm looking uh, her over or him over, I have all kinds of questions. I mean, questions like, well, how did this pilot get his training? You know, did he eat a good breakfast this morning? Uh, Is he a drinker? You know, is he good at his job? Does he take any prescription medications that might make him sleepy or drowsy? I mean, I want to know all kinds of things about the pilot, right? Because when I get on a plane, I want to know that the pilot is alert and competent and in control. I want to know that not only is someone flying the little tube that I'm sitting in, but I want to know that they, they care about their job and they care about the people that are sitting in that little tube behind them, right? Now listen, when it comes to living in a world where things, things can seem random and out of control and people have to endure unfair and evil, even evil things happen, Sometimes we want to know, don't we? I mean, is anyone piloting this thing? I mean, is there anybody running the show, right? Is there someone who's in charge and in control? And if he is, is he good? Is he powerful? What kind of person is he? And these are exactly the kinds of questions that the book of Daniel answers quite quite definitively it this is why we say the book of daniel is tailor-made for the season we live in right now so for the next several months we're just going to immerse ourselves in this book and we're going to come out different people and a different church at the end of the study we're going to be better equipped and better prepared to live um, in a world where sometimes things seem out of control right Because in a world filled with natural disasters and broken homes and global pandemics, we need to know, right, is God in control? And if he is in control, can he be trusted? And more specifically, can I trust him? I mean, can he be trusted when I've lost my job because of the pandemic? Can he be trusted when I can't see my friends? Can he be trusted when I can't walk across a graduation stage to celebrate my graduation? Can he be trusted when my marriage falls apart or when my children don't turn out the way I had planned or I had envisioned? Can he be trusted when my health is declining or my finances look shaky? Listen, before you know anything else about Daniel, you have to know this. Daniel never expected, he never dreamed, he did not plan uh, on being in Babylon. He never dreamed he would end up in Babylon. 
I want you to try to picture Daniel in your mind. He was one of the brightest and the best that Israel had to offer. And we know a fair amount about Daniel just from these first few verses, the first three or four verses. We know, first of all, that he was from a family of high social status. We know as well that he was physically flawless. He was like a perfect specimen. If my wife were doing this message, she would tell you to picture Hugh Jackman who she thinks is really attractive and well-built. Though to be fair, when Hugh isn't working out six hours a day, he starts to look really, really thin, a little emaciated. So I would just ask you to picture Hugh Jackman when he is working out six hours a day. This is what Daniel looked like, right? Daniel was also super intelligent. These, the few words say he was quick to understand. It says he was qualified to serve in the king's palace, which means not only did he have a high IQ, but he had a high EQ as well. He knew how to approach people. He knew how to talk to people. You might say that Daniel was street smart, right? He knew um, how to approach people in such a way as to get things done. I mean, he was devoted to God, and he was devoted to God's people. I mean, picture this. Back in Judah, his future would have been kind of automatic and bright, right? I mean, the whole world was in front of him. He would have gone to a great school. He would have had success in whatever field he chose. He would have gotten married. He would have probably lived in an enviable home, raised a family. You know, he would have occupied a prominent place in the temple or among the people of God. He would have been some kind of leader. And he would have wanted, like every young Jewish boy, to do great things for God and for God's people. But life did not turn out the way Daniel planned. Listen, folks, there's a whole world of heartbreak in these first two verses. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That means he surrounded it, he slowly broke it down, he invaded it, he sacked it, he destroyed it, he killed many of the citizens that were there, and he carted off the best and the brightest and took them to his city where they could learn his culture and his languages and learn how to forget and forsake everything else they'd ever been taught. I mean, there's a world of heartache and heartbreak in those verses, right? And, and it gets even worse. There's even a bigger heartache because God had made a promise a long time ago to a man named Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'll be your God and your people will be my people. And I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. And that promise was so important to Daniel. That promise was so important to the people of Israel. It had literally sustained them for centuries. They got up every day and prayed for, for the fulfillment of that promise, right? And now in Daniel's time, that promise made by God seems to have been broken. I mean, Daniel has literally lost everything he's lost his culture he's lost his family he's lost many of the relationships he cherished he would have to learn a new language he would have to live and die in a place he never wanted to be uh, he even loses his name uh, in fact i want us to look at verses seven and eight because there's so much meaning in these verses 
um, Daniel loses his name. In verse 7, uh, so here's what Daniel meant. Daniel meant God is judge. God is judge. And his name is changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Baal protect his life. Baal was one of the Babylonian gods, one of the gods that they worshipped, right? And then, uh, and think about this, through his life, every time Daniel heard his name, it was a lifelong reminder, the Lord will set things right. The Lord will see that justice is done. I mean, his very name had been a promise for as long as he'd ever heard it, every day of his life. And now he's not even Daniel anymore. His name doesn't even mean God will judge anymore. He's been given a name of a completely different God, an inferior God, a Babylonian God. Uh, and it even looks like that promise has been shattered, right? Another one of his friends, Hananiah, he grew up from the time he was a little boy being told his name meant Jehovah is gracious. My guess is that in this story, Hananiah was having a really hard time believing that. Is the Lord really gracious in light of what's happened to his people? Uh, his name was taken away and he was called Shadrach, which means he who is in the command of a coup. Yet another one of these uh, Babylonian gods, right? One of Daniel's other friends was named Mishael, which meant who is he that is God? His name meant that God was incomparable, that there was no one like God, right? And the name that was given to him was Meshach, which uh, means who is a coup, the same Babylonian God his friend Mishael was named after. And then his final friend, Azariah, means Jehovah has helped. And he must have wondered, is that really true? I mean, is God helping us now? I'm here completely against my will. And the Babylonians said, well, it doesn't matter whether you believe that anymore or not because your new name is going to be Abednego. You're now a servant of the god Naboo. These men literally have lost everything. And as if that wasn't enough, this king is trying to shape and mold their very, he's trying to st strip away their old identities and give them new ones. I mean, think about this, folks. All their lives, their names reminded them that they belong to God. And the, the new names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them was his way of saying, hey, you have a new king in town, king now, give yourself to me, and I want you to allow Babylon, not, not the Old Testament, not Torah. I want you to allow Babylon to define your identity. So let me ask you, what do you do when you end up in a place you never expected to be? What do you do when you end up in Babylon? See, Babylon is that place where we, find, we all find ourselves there when life does not turn out the way that we plan. Babylon is where is when you end up in the land of your disappointment. Now, several months ago, when the whole COVID thing first hit, you know, I mean, you remember this, right? Everything just got upended and halted. Everything just came to a screeching halt. Uh, many of your plans were thwarted. Many of our plans were were thwarted and right about the time this was all happening um, right when the virus first came out and everybody was social distancing and staying at home and all that pastor craig shot a video about uh and and 
and I want to, and, and he's really trying to diagnose what's happening in our hearts and minds at the beginning of this deal. And so I want you to watch Pastor Craig's video, and then we're going to come back to Daniel's story. So check this out. This morning I woke up here in Shelbyville, Indiana. And I found myself laying in bed thinking to myself, what, uh, what would I be doing right now if I was down in Houston? You see, this is the week of spring break. And we had a team set to go to Houston for the third year in a row to go help and rebuild after Hurricane Harvey. This morning, I should have woken up. I should have taken a shower, grabbed some breakfast, packed a lunch, packed my tools. Uh, and we should have headed to, to Calvin and Dominique's house to finish working on their kitchen. I spent the last six months uh, working on this trip, putting together details, working with Nick, uh, putting together work projects, putting together devotions, putting together uh, all the room reservations and the van reservations, just all the work that goes into to putting together a mission trip. I've spent countless hours praying for this week, praying for this team, praying for the folks that we were gonna work with and the folks that we were gonna encounter this week, praying for the neighborhood that we were gonna be working in. And instead, I'm here in my house in Shelbyville, Indiana. How many of you aren't where you thought that you were going to be this week? Some of you had to cancel a trip that you've been waiting so long to go on. Some of you are scrambling to try and figure out childcare solutions now that your kids are out of school for the foreseeable future. Some of you find yourself filing for unemployment because your employer had to shut down. Some of you find yourself at the hospital surrounded by workers that are so tired and exhausted and other patients that are fearful of the unknown. And it doesn't take very long to see that people are sad, to see that people are angry, to see that people are worrying, that people are full of anxiety, that some people have slipped into depression. But I think when you start to peel back all of those layers, when you start to peel back what's going on and you get down to the root, I think the root of it is that we're all disappointed. Disappointed that plans got changed. Disappointed that we're out of work. Disappointed that our bodies have failed us. Disappointed in the loss of a loved one. In this season, I want you to know that you're not alone. You know, I think the, the whole idea of social distancing, this idea of, of separating ourselves, of being in isolation for the good of other people, uh, it's kind of an oxymoron, right? It almost stands in opposition because you and I, we're wired for community. We're actually wired to be with other people. And so what's so dangerous about this thing is that every single one of us has been affected, yet every single one of us believes that we're the only one. And I want to tell you that you're not the only one. And so while I can't talk you out of your disappointment, I can point you to Jesus in it. What we need to remember is that over and over and over again, Jesus experienced disappointment. His disciples abandoned him. One of them betrayed him. One of them denied him. The disappointment that you and I might be feeling, Jesus has felt too. While he walked this earth, he experienced the same things that we experience. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16 says, We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. 
1 Peter 5, 7. It says, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Share your disappointment with Jesus. Tell him how you're feeling. Tell him how you're frustrated. Tell him what you're experiencing and be completely honest with how you're dealing with it. But don't just share it with him. Share it with others. Share it with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We need all the help that we can get when we're down. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In this season of disappointment, it's so easy to sit and stew about your circumstances. But I'm going to tell you this. Nothing good comes from ill will towards people that may have wronged you or shaking your fist at God over what's taken place. Now is the time to confess. God, I don't know why they did this. I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen. But I'm going to trust that you know what's best and that this is best for me. In a season of disappointment, it's so critical that you look at your own story, that you look at your own life, that you look at the ways that God has delivered you in past seasons of disappointment. It's so critical that you look back and you see how God delivered you in those seasons, the work that God did in you and through you in those seasons. And then you need to take that story and you need to look at the truth for yourself and you need to use your story for the good of other people. You see, my own story exists to point me to the truth. But my story exists to help point other people to the truth. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, He comforts us all in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. And so while our earthly hopes may be dashed for a season, we have an eternal hope that never fades. Our disappointment here on earth can help us redirect to our hope that we have in Jesus, to an eternal hope. There is a day when all disappointment will be removed, when all things will be made new and all things will remain new. Every possible source of disappointment will be removed. Revelation 21, three to five. It says, I heard a voice of thunder from the throne. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They are his people. He is their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone, crying gone, pain gone. All the first order of things gone. The enthroned continue, look, I am making everything May we be a church that remembers. May we be a church that shares. May we be a church that submits and a church that is filled with hope. Right? Maybe it happened to you in a relationship or even a marriage that you had, you know, and you had such dreams for it, and it, it's, it ends. Maybe it's, you know, when you thought you were going to be at this level in your job and you're not there, and maybe you're not even at that job anymore. You know, maybe it happened to you when somebody that you love just wounded you deeply and you're trying to figure all that out, right? Maybe it's when you realize that a deep prayer that you've been praying for years 
just isn't being answered and you wonder why right you find yourself in babylon in this place of disappointment and you wonder does he even notice i mean has he forgotten me does he even care now it's not clear why in the story but it is clear that uh at some point in the story daniel needed to take a stand that he needed to draw a line, probably because the meat that he would have eaten uh, at the king's table would have been sacrificed to these Babylonian gods that we uh, talked about before, right? It would have been offered to them. Um, And so, uh, and you need to know that for Daniel to take this stand, it took incredible, incredible courage. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king we're talking about here, was a very dangerous, a very ruthless leader. In fact, let me just show you how dangerous in 2 Kings 25 so this is in the Bible a puppet king by the name of Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar so Nebuchadnezzar captures Zedekiah and his family and he had Zedekiah's sons killed right before his eyes he slays his sons and then he gouges Zedekiah's eyes out So that the last thing Zedekiah would ever see was his sons being killed. And then he sets him loose to wander around in the wilderness not being able to see. See, I mean, you've heard of leaders with a hands-on or a hands-off management style. Nebuchadnezzar had what you might call a heads-off management style. If you displeased him... You lost your life. And, and think about it. How many of you have ever had a boss that terminated you, that when he terminated you, you were really terminated? Right? None of us probably, or you wouldn't be here right now, right? This is the kind of boss Nebuchadnezzar was. That's who Daniel is going to be taking a stand against here. Now, in many ways, verse 8 is the hinge for the whole book, not only for the, the, just chapter 1, and it's certainly the hinge in chapter 1, but it's really a hinge for everything that's going to happen in the book of Daniel. And it's so powerful and it's so important, and many of us might just gloss right over it if we you know, weren't paying attention. Here's what I want you to notice. Up until now, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, have determined everything. They've made all the decisions. Daniel and his friend have not made one decision. They didn't get to attend one meeting to give input on their future. You know, everything that happened to them was kind of foisted upon them. There was literally nothing they could have done, right? So in other words, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who goes and decides to conquer Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who determines to cart off most of its sacred objects and most of its highest potential citizens. He determines to enroll them in leadership academy. He decides on the entrance criteria and the subject matter. The dean of the school decides what their new names will be, their new identities. He decides what the menu is going to be right and the easiest thing in the world would have been for Daniel to do what sometimes you and I are tempted to do and that is to feel like he's just a passive victim of circumstances he can't control and well hey he may as well just you know submit because there's nothing he can do but from verse 8 on the course of this entire story starts to shift 
And this is hard to pick up in most translations. The way it, the way it kind of a literal rendering from the Hebrew here would be this. The chief of staff determined new names for Daniel and his friend. He determined the name Belteshazzar. He determined the next name. He determined the next name. And then all of a sudden, then in verse 8, here's what it says. But then Daniel determined. Daniel determined. He resolved not to defile himself with the rich food. It's the same verb getting repeated over and over. But this time, Daniel the captive, Daniel the prisoner, Daniel is the one making a decision. And the writer uses a real strong word for this decision. It could be translated this way. Daniel resolved in his heart he would honor God that he would not defile God or himself. He just decides. Do you know what Daniel's done? Daniel's remembering his name. He's remembering who he really, really was. Right? I mean, you know, it's just incredible. Daniel does not view himself as a helpless pawn of circumstances that are just beyond his control. Daniel makes a decision. He resolves. I will honor God. I will be true to my deepest values. Even if it costs me my life. Even if it results on my head being on a platter. I'm still going to be true to my deepest values. Right? And I'm not just... I'm not going to resign myself to believing that I live in a world filled with forces beyond my control or, I'm, or that I'm just a victim of circumstances and there's nothing I can do about it. And so now, as a result of this decision, we start to see Daniel's persistence kind of as street smarts, right? Daniel says, so he goes to the dean of the school, he makes his request, you, you heard the request, right? And the dean says, well, but if I say yes to you, you're going to end up looking weak and malnourished, and the king will have my head, because this chief of staff knew how ruthless King Nebuchadnezzar was, right? So Daniel says to himself, well, that's not exactly a yes, but it's not exactly a no either. So he goes to the next person down on the org chart, which is the guard, and he proposes to the guard, right? Hey, let's try my diet for 10 days, and then you be the judge. I mean, Daniel just exercises this amazing faith and courage that God is going to work when it doesn't seem God has been working up to this point. Notice I said it doesn't seem. We're going to come back to that. And Daniel does this when it looked like everything was lost and he was just up against hopeless and impossible circumstances. Daniel just resolves in his heart. So let me just ask you a question. What decision do you need to make today? What, what do you need to resolve in your heart about some area of your life that isn't pleasing to your Heavenly Father? What decision do you need to make? And will you stop believing that you're just a victim of circumstances that are too big and out of your control? Because the good news is, you're absolutely right. The circumstances are out of your control, but they're not out of your Heavenly Father's control. And we're going to see that very clearly together in just a few minutes, right? Um, so Daniel 
Uh, as, so the guard listens to Daniel, has favor uh, and sympathy on him, puts him on the diet. As a result, Daniel goes, you know, to the head of the class, and he becomes kind of the valedictorian, right? Um, and, but but it, this all started because he made a decision. He resolved in his heart he would honor God. So let me just ask you again, where are you getting tangled up in life? Now, I recognize today's kind of heavy, so I want to tell a story to illustrate this idea of getting mangled and tangled up. This is from a Christian comedian by the name of Ken Davis. Ken Davis actually uh, swears up and down this story is true, but I seriously have my doubts. Here's the story as Ken Davis tells it. Uh, he writes, it happened at a traffic light near the edge of town. Uh, a heavily bearded and tattooed man gunned the engine of his huge Harley Davidson motorcycle as he was waiting for the light to change. As he waited at the light, an old and frail man on a lime green moped pulled up beside him. The hum of the moped was drowned out by the roaring thunder of the Harley. Uh, Boy, that's some motorcycle you got there, the old man choked out. Mind if I take a closer look? You know, kind of scowling from behind his greasy beard, the biker gave him the once-over and said, well, if it turns your crank, old man, go ahead. Well, the old man was a little far-sighted, so he, but he wanted to take in all the scenery of this beautiful, gorgeous bike, right? So he leans in real close and studies the bike very carefully. After he studied it, for a long, long time, he still leaned in. He kind of says to the driver of the motorcycle, I'll bet that motorcycle goes really, really fast. But no sooner were the words out of his mouth, the light changed. The biker thought he'd show this old geezer what his motorcycle could really do. He just hits the throttle full speed. And within 30 seconds, the speedometer is up to almost 200 miles an hour. Suddenly, though, he looks in his rearview mirror, he sees a dot, and the dot seems to be getting bigger. I mean, what could that be? He slowed down a little bit to get a better look, and whatever the thing was, it zoomed past him so fast he couldn't even tell what it was. I mean, and it just disappeared over the horizon, whipped around, started out as a dot, and then just started coming right back at him. As it zipped past this time, he recognized what it was. It was the old man on this lime green moped. I mean, how could this be? The biker takes another look into his rear view mirror, right? There was that speck coming at him again and, and getting bigger by the minute. The biker tried to gun it again, get up going really fast, but he just couldn't outrun this old man on this moped. And it was a moot point because in seconds the moped slammed into the rear of this Harley-Davidson. The collision destroyed both bikes. You could hear the impact for miles. The biker extricates himself from the mangled steel pretzel that had once been his beloved Harley-Davidson, but the old man had fared even worse. I mean, he lay groaning beneath the black and smoking remnants of his moped. And it was so much to take in, even this hardened biker, right? He feels compassion for the old man. So he leans down, he, he whispers into the old man's ear and says, listen, is there anything I can do for you? And the old man looks up and he says, yeah, you can unhook my suspenders from your handlebars. Yeah, I know. Don't hiss. Listen, if I was truly funny, I'd be doing comedy for a living, okay? Uh, yeah, you just, if you don't like it, 
we'll give you your money back. Oh, wait, you didn't pay to be here, did you? So never mind. Yeah, see, here, here's why I say that. Uh, because, listen, the old man's tangled up in his bike, right? What is it that you're tangled up in right now? That if you, if you didn't untangle yourself, it's just going to result in wreckage and damage to your life or the lives of people that you love. In what way do you need to untangle yourself? How do you need to resolve today to get untangled? See, I'll tell you something else about Babylon. Babylon is not just the land of our disappointment. Babylon is also that place that will try to lure us away from God and intimidate us into thinking that this world is too harsh a place to live or to be or to grow. That's what Babylon was trying to do when they were changing the names of Daniel and his friends, right? Intimidate them, infuse them with a new identity, get them to think the way Babylon thinks, in the same way that our world will try to get us to think the way that they do. But Daniel is about to discover something in Babylon that he would have never known if he'd lived his whole life in Israel. He was about to discover that someone else was at work in Babylon as well. Let's look at chapter 1. Let's start at the back end. right? We're going to kind of do it backwards. Start with verse 17. See if you can find the character whose name keeps popping up. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. Then look at verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Right? And then look at verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I mean, who's the character that keeps being brought up? It's God. God is working. Even in the land of disappointment, even in Babylon, even when bad things are happening to good people, right? God is working and God is in control. See, the writer of Daniel knows what the Israelites, many of the Israelites did not know. He's convinced that even the defeat of Judah and the loss of the temple that looked so tragic and so random and so meaningless that God was not sleeping through that. That God had not broken his promise or forgotten his dream. He knew that God was up to something in Babylon or even in a place of great suffering. God was still working and moving. God was still in control. And here's the mind blower. The reason God put Daniel and his friends and the nobility of Israel in Babylon is because God loves Babylon too. Because God even loved Nebuchadnezzar. A man who would gouge another man's eyes out before he would, right after he killed his sons. God even loved that man. And so he planted a people. In other words, how could Israel bless the world if they weren't part of the world? See, God was still working. God was still in control. And it's so important to get this. Here's what Dallas Willard writes, and I love this quote. I hope it gets in and rattles around between your ears today. Here's what Dallas Willard says. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. What I'm telling you 
is that you can, you can think about what should have been or could have been or would have been or might have been. But do you know where God wants to meet you today? He wants to meet you where you are. You have to, re, you have to start where you are. You have to resolve where you are. And quit pining or wishing for what might have been. And then Dallas goes on to say this. If we faithfully discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right or good or perfect, we will simply have no place to receive God's kingdom into our lives. So listen. Here's what I'm telling you. When we say things like this, this situation is way too hard. God, I don't see you working. I'm going to try to control this for myself. You know, or no, I'm going to reject this because it's not what I wanted or it's not perfect or it's not good. What Dallas Wilder is saying is there will, there will never be a circumstance in our life where we can ask the kingdom of God to change us and shape us and mold us into the men and women that God wants us to be. God's sovereignty, it means God's in control. Here's what God's sovereignty means. It means that big, God is bigger than you think he is, and he's more involved in your life than you think he is. He's in control. He's working, even behind the scenes when the scenes are painful and unpleasant right and so the author in, of Daniel is pulling the curtain back to show us that God is at work even in something like the city of Babylon and what this means is that God is at work today in the middle of a global pandemic in the middle of our disappointment in the middle of our world that would try to lure us away from him and create an independence from him right now listen to the entire book of Daniel asks this question, who is going to save us? Who is going to save us? It's laying the groundwork for the Messiah. See, uh, and what it's saying is it's saying, look, in the midst of, uh, of my life and my hard times and the hard times of people that I know, God is moving toward this appointed goal. And I want to tell you, the goal that the book of Daniel points us to is Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus in the book of Daniel very, very clearly, even though it's in the Old Testament. But it's asking the question, who's going to set things right? Who's going to, who, how is justice going to come to be? And it's answering this question. And we know on the backside that the answer to that is Jesus. And let me tell you, Jesus was faithful in the middle of his disappointment and the reason he was faithful in the middle of his disappointment is because of you and me. Because you and I were the joy that the author of Hebrews says was set before him. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for us. The answer is Jesus. It's Jesus who saves. And we're going to see that again and again and again in the book of Daniel. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up our time. I'm going to invite Pastor Brandon up. Brandon's actually going to come up alone, and we're just going to soak and marinate in a song in response to what we've heard together today. I hope it is as meaningful for you as it is for me. But before we do that, I just want to tell you how we're going to respond together, right? Listen, if you're joining us online today in your living room or your bedroom, uh, you can click on the link and you can respond in a number of ways there. It's laid out 
Um, anything that you need, you can even do that from your living room if you're here in the room with us. Um, you know, uh, you can bring an offering to the front or the back. You can receive prayer if you need to do that. Maybe for some of you, you just need to be engaged in the words that you're singing. Maybe some of you need to take that moment where you resolve something, right? Maybe you felt like a hapless victim of your circumstances walking in today. You can still resolve. You can still choose. You can still decide because you serve a God that is bigger than your circumstances. You are not a victim. God's Word says you are a victor, but you have to resolve. You have to make decisions out of that. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to just respond together in worship. Heavenly Father, thank you today for reminding us that you're in control, that you've got us, and you've got this. So we give you praise, we give you thanks, because you're the Lord, and we know that nothing is too good for you. And so we put our hope this morning in you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.